Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 21 and 22. Crossfire and contraband. Serbia-Kosovo conflict. drug trafficking and connection with terrorism today to have a deep dive into such a wide range of topic which have we have today with us adam drusel and he will be taking us on a kind of you know tour of what happens on the geopolitical front as well as inside the drug tra- trafficking rackets uh, and its connection with the terrorism so adam uh, welcome to the podcast Thank you for having me. Likewise, thank you very much for giving us your time, precious time, Adam. Uh, so, before we start with the topic, can you uh, give us a brief uh, introduction about yourself and how did you end up, uh, you know, being such a such an expert in in a niche area? Well, I I don't know uh, if I'd say uh, it's it's quite so niche. I I. tend to be kind of a generalist when it comes to research uh but um my background is uh in like university days I did history and political science as an undergraduate and as a masters degree um since then I've worked as an editor uh I currently work in financial research uh in the commodities business so uh we published reports for clients that uh help them understand some of the risks associated with global supply chains specific to the iron ore and uh steel business. Uh but I also work with uh Militant Wire uh out of Canada uh which is um a fantastic company started by my childhood friend uh Weber and we uh cover a, a whole broad range of global security issues. Um Lucas will tend to uh put me on to something and uh I'll do a deep dive into it and uh you know produce reports and uh and and kind of get get into things uh sometimes I I take the initiative and I'll go find something that's really a flashpoint on my own uh the Serbian uh Serbia Kosovo conflict has been one that's uh of been, been a particular interest to me as well as uh the uh issue of the drug war in Mexico uh both massive geopolitical flashpoints that I think will have long-standing ramifications and that's the kind of research I like to get into. Interesting. Thank you very much for you know uh, have giving us a broad perspective about your background and uh, the your area of interest and your research expertise too. And without any delay I would like to as you mentioned like you know this is a very complex geopolitical landscape. Without any delay I would like to you know straight away dive into the topic. So from your perspective what are the root causes of the Serbia Kosovo conflict and how have they evolved over time 
Well, it's a bit of a complicated question, Ankar, but I think uh, if we're looking at just this current issue that we're seeing today, uh, the, the root, long story short, is there was a, a very brief but brutal war in Kosovo in 98-99 uh, that uh, resulted in uh, independent Kosovo. Uh, within that state, there were, at the time, some 300,000 ethnic Serbs, or about 120,000 now. Um, they've long complained of having limited access to opportunities, uh, difficulty moving throughout the country, different things like that. Um, they're primarily concentrated in the north along the border region, though there are a few municipalities in the south. Um, Serbia does not recognize Kosovar sovereignty. They're not the only one. Uh, in fact, about half the world uh, doesn't actually recognize. Um, Serbia had previously been issuing license plates to ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo. And uh, the Kosovar state uh, began uh, denying them entry at the border. Uh, this became a, a massive uh, issue because a lot of uh, ethnic Serbs in Kosovo travel to see family in Serbia. Some of them even make their living across the other side of the border. So it become, became a huge issue, uh, especially if they're being denied access to their own uh, their own country. So um, a few months later, you have uh, ethnic Serbs uh, refusing to take part in local elections, uh, including uh, ethnic Serbian parties. Uh, the result was the complete boycott of these elections and the default um, appointment of, or election, I suppose, of ethnic Albanian mayors. Uh, when these mayors attempted to take office, there were widespread protests in the uh, dominantly Serbian municipalities, uh, and uh, there's been huge clashes with uh, NATO peacekeepers operating within the region. I think some 34 have been injured to date in these uh, in these protests and conflicts. Interesting. Yeah, I believe this area of conflict is kind of similar to what we see all across the world. And someone coming from India, so I, I'm originally from India, and I can relate to this conflict to what we are observing here in India on the POK side. And from that yes. perspective, uh, I feel the international community response to this is always, you know, kind of conflicting at times. So so can you tell us how has the international community responded to the Serbia-Kosovo conflict and what role have they played in resolution or, you know, possibly kind of, you know, finding some solution to the conflict? Well, NATO has been very vocal uh, to call for, um, it, it's been not very effective uh, to date. Uh, there's been uh, EU delegates that have gone down there and, uh, you know, there's, there's a video of, uh, of I, I think, a member of the German Bundestag down there, uh, and she's kind of having an argument with the, uh, you know, with the protesters, and they're just not really listening responding. Yes. Um, it's clear that uh, these calls for de-escalation are, are not uh, working, and that uh, NATO is becoming pretty desperate for this to go away, it seems. Uh, Russia's been less vocal, but it has 
being it has stated that it does support the ethnic Serbs living within Kosovo, and uh, of course Russia is a uh, ally of Serbia, so um, there's a real potential for tension there as well. All right. Yeah, I think historically and culturally, uh, the Serbians are uh, very much, I, I would say, aligned or related to the Russia. And from that perspective, can you just extend a little bit on the historical and cultural context that has possibly contributed to the Serbia-Kosovo conflict? Sure. So, I mean, just to that point, um, you know, different alliances between Serbia and Russia, they go back you know, over a century uh, at this point where, uh, you know, back in uh, the years prior to World War II, the Pan-Slavic movement uh, brought uh, Russia and Serbia into a formal alliance at the time. And that was actually the spark of the First World War was when uh, Austria uh, declared war on Serbia, Russia declared war on Austria, and then course the, the precipitation happened that resulted in the most destructive war in human history to that date um it depends on who you ask uh what the real historical context i mean if you ask like the ultra nationalists in both countries uh serbs will say that kosovo is an integral part of their homeland that goes back to ancient times kosovars will say the same thing uh, claiming that it's it was uh, part of their ancient uh, homeland uh, as the Illyrians, who uh, are believed to be the precursors of the Albanians and written about since the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, the truth is that Kosovo was under uh, Ottoman rule uh, up until the 19th century, uh, whereas Serbia had gained independence at, at, uh, at much earlier times than that. Um, the area was quite Islamized. A lot of uh, ethnic Albanians had moved in. Um, and there were various points of tension. But in the post-World War II era, Yugoslavia had um, recognized some uh, autonomy for the region. Uh, it had, there was a relative peace within the country. Uh, you know, the country had quite, had achieved quite a lot in terms of living standards and uh, inter-ethnic harmony. That all broke down uh, with the fall of Yugoslavia in 91, uh, or 89 and 91. Uh, starting in 89, Slobodan and Milosevic had uh, been encouraging Serbian settlement of the region, uh, and it kind of ramped up since then uh, until the late 90s, when as many as 850,000 ethnic Albanians were forcibly expelled into either neighboring Albania or uh, Macedonia. Um, there were a lot of massacres that occurred uh, at the time uh, as well. And there were uh, things like such as the destruction of mosques and cultural sites on, on both sides. The, there were uh, ethnic Albanian gangs that were also uh, taking part in the destruction of, uh, of uh, Serbian uh, Orthodox churches as well. So it's, it was a very... Uh, very brutal, um, brutal war between the two sides that only ended with the uh, severe bombing campaign that was initiated by NATO in 1999 that okay. forced the Serbian army north. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have seen uh, like the stability was there, as you mentioned, during the Yugoslavia. And then 
we saw the rise of i think nato forces the united states coming into the play and somewhere i believe uh, though i think the eastern europe was you know kind of uh, made independent but somewhere we observed like you know some of this conflict area still are thriving and i think these are the repercussions of the actions uh, somewhere you know taken by the allied forces at that time uh, so you know just following up on this uh, can you tell us uh, how has this conflict potentially impacted the lives of ordinary people living in the region and what are and from your perspective i mean like if you are comfortable to of course share with share with us uh, what are some personal experiences stories uh, that shed light on human toll of the conflict well i know uh, i mean if you go back not that long ago certainly within both of our lifetimes uh, there were uh, instances of massacres and uh, widespread ethnic cleansing that would still be very fresh in the minds of a lot of uh, people uh, in in on both sides of the conflict, um, and I think that uh, that that informs a lot of the decision making to date. Uh, you know, it, it's it's also been a very tough go uh, for both countries economically because they both exist in this sort of isolated state. Uh, Kosovo can't isn't won't be granted access to the EU over its contentious issues, and so it's really cut off from regional markets. Serbia is similarly being kind of uh, a pariah within the region, uh, and uh, is now increasingly uh, surrounded by by NATO member states. So. Uh, both countries have have suffered a lot in the in the years you know during and since the the conflict. Um, you, you know, the numbers kind of speak to themselves. Where you had over three hundred thousand ethnic Serbs living uh, in the in Kosovo, and that number's fallen yeah. by half. So it's definitely uh, it's definitely an issue, uh, and I think a lot of a lot of people, especially a lot of the younger ones, have left for opportunities, better opportunities, either in Serbia or abroad. And that's true of both countries. If you look at uh, you know both Kosovo and Serbia, uh, you're finding a lot of people from both countries migrating either to Europe or uh, or elsewhere uh, to seek opportunities abroad uh, because there's there's just limited opportunities there. So it's it's uh, it's been a very difficult uh, past, you know, almost three decades now since uh, since this whole uh, issue became came to a boiling point. Uh, in terms of yes. personal stories, I'm not I, I I I don't know people personally. I wouldn't want to speak for them, uh, but uh, you know, I know just having researched the issue that it's uh, it would be a tremendous uh, human toll uh, for for everybody involved. Yes, I think, uh, yeah, I would like to share, uh, you know, kind of some experiences from my side a little bit because I have had uh, some of my former university batchmates uh, uh, from Serbia and I believe I still, I was still able, I, I mean, when I came here to, in Europe, I was unaware about, you know, the details of the Serbia-Kosovo conflict. And the way, you know, I started, you know, uh, becoming good friends with them, uh, then, you know, slowly, gradually, I started, you know, realizing some thought process or, you know, I mean, the scars of the conflict uh, that, uh, you know, the Yugoslavia breakup and all, uh, those still thrive mm -hmm. in the minds of young generation. 
uh, of course not to the uh, I, i haven't seen at least my batchmates to going to the violent level and all uh but you know yeah. they they say but it is still you know somewhere the memory is still like fresh you know because uh, it's not even uh, less than you know it's it's less than 50 years uh, so i think the memories are still fresh in the minds of young generation and just yes. you know kind of yeah so just kind of you know following up on the same lines uh, i'd like to little bit take you know deep dive into the patriotism and national aspect so what role does nationalism play in perpetuating the soviet kosovo conflict and how is that shaped the uh, political landscape of the region well it's it's very interesting uh the role nationalism comes to play in geopolitical conflicts it it's you know the 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 whole yugoslav experiment post world war 2 kind of demonstrates that nationalism uh can be contained when there's kind of a common uh vision for a place and a people like i mean you know when people are taken care of when the system is stable when uh you know when there's opportunity for for jobs etc nationalist tensions tend not to to boil up i mean you see this you know across the world when ethnic tensions tend to become at their highest when uh when there's a, a deeper economic issue and that's sort of exactly what happened with you know starting in the 80s i mean if you look at like footage from the you know from the 84 olympics in uh in sarajevo you'd have no idea that that entire city would be just bombed flat within a decade you know uh it it ha- it can happen and it can happen very fast now i think you have these forces that have been galvanized in internationalism uh, on on both sides and policymakers tend to be more practical um you know with exceptions i mean certainly during the slobodan milosevic uh years uh in serbia you know this is this is the proof in the pudding where you know if you allow you know one of these radicals to get it get yes. into the reins of powers they can really destroy a country yes. uh yeah but you know now um moderate you know at least in in practice and maybe not belief but uh in both countries they have to appeal to a constituency that has that you know the 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 uh taken uh, off the jar of uh of not of you know you see uh in Serbia uh president Vučić uh is playing a very careful line uh between um trying not to ignite a war but at the same time uh ap- appealing to the to the more ra- to his more radical base uh him being a you know a center right uh politician himself so i i can see this creating much more uh a much more likely stalemate moving forward and and kind of kicking the can down the road if this doesn't result in an outright war uh at present all right yeah i think uh, 
as you gave this contest uh, in detail about the current and the past situation i believe it, it is it is like uh, not fair to say that you know we'll reach a, a steady or you know very quick i would say very quick uh, reconciliation in this uh, conflict uh but but still you know uh, as we say that you know the humans always have hope so how does the uh, serbia kosovo conflict impact the regional stability and possibly what are the broader geopolitical implications of the ongoing tensions well regionally i mean you know the possibility of a, of a war between these two countries could be quite devastating and quite brutal i mean i think the first victims uh of such a thing would probably be uh serbs living within kosovo and the escalation could get so much worse um if nato were to get involved again um as it did in 99 you're dealing with a much different geopolitical context uh 1999 russia was a much uh a much less assertive country a much less coherently run country uh with a much uh less effective leadership uh that's not to say that vladimir putin's regime is the exact opposite of those things uh i think in you know the last year or so has really proven that it's not uh but you're dealing with a much more geopolitically assertive russia today that would have a lot more to say and perhaps do uh if uh this conflict were to boil over to a point of outright war between the two sides and result in nato nato end of intervention um the consequences for that you know are are beyond extraction or, or abstraction but you know you can certainly imagine worst case scenarios of uh, uh heightening nuclear tensions if, if that were to be the case today yes i believe as i think we have discussed uh, most of the issues and uh, in this part of serbia kosovo conflict and as as i said like it is it is not really fair to say that we'll reach a reconciliation very quickly uh but still from your perspective what steps can be taken to foster dialogue and understanding uh, you know uh, both the sides well i think there's been some hope like for instance the two sides were able to reach some kind of de facto agreement over the license plate issue and i think having some kind of open dialogue and working relationship between the two of them regardless of uh of you know the political positions of each i mean it is difficult to recognize you know to uh for countries to operate you know to have bilateral relations when one doesn't recognize the other but uh certainly working dialogue can be uh established and i think should i think that um i think that nato should encourage uh bilateral dialogue between uh pristina and uh belgrade uh in this matter um in terms of the bigger picture i mean it's you know it's it's also a question of whether serbia remains a steadfast ally of russia and and where things go with russia uh with regard to its position geopolitically 
I mean, there are some out there uh, who say that Russia is in, in, in the midst of a major geopolitical decline uh, and that, um, you know, this latest coup attempt is, is uh, perhaps proof of that. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that, but there have been rumblings uh, within Serbia that uh, could show a little bit of uh, wavering on that alliance. For instance, Vucic, uh, it was very unclear at one point that uh, whether or not uh, Serbia would support Ukraine yes. uh, and sell ammunition uh, to Ukraine. It, in, in the war, um, Vucic has come out and, and denied that uh, personally, and it's very clear that Serbia's ultra-nationalist community does not uh, support uh, Ukraine, but rather Russia in the conflict, uh, and there are Serbian volunteers within uh, Russia, or within Ukraine, uh, fighting for Russia at this time. However, uh, the ultra-nationalists don't necessarily represent the entire population, uh, and Serbia is a country where uh, things can change politically. I mean, uh, you know, Vucic, who is an elected leader, yes. uh, if you go back to, uh, you know, 2000, uh, Slobodan Milosevic was overthrown in a violent coup. So I think he's yes. very cautious of playing uh, both sides and playing it very careful in this regard to yes. avoid uh, a similar fate. Um, and I think the last thing he would want would be a war, given the fate of Milosevic, where he died in custody in The Hague. So um, it's I think yeah. it's it's a very it's very difficult to say, but you could see a shift in Serbia's geopolitical position, uh, especially, yes. you know, if it wants to gain some of the economic benefits of regional integration, which it's been deprived of for two decades now. Yes. Yeah, I that would, of course, I think, require some de facto recognition. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes I think, uh, yeah, I was saying that you're absolutely right about this. And I believe the world we live in, of course, uh, from the economic side I'm speaking about is that somewhere I think the economic stability or the need for economic stability, I would mention in this way that it pushes the countries to, you know, possibly, if not fully resolve the conflict, then at least reach some mutual agreement uh, where you know both the sides are at you know possibly on a profit side and maybe possibly we can see uh, this thing happening later in the future uh, between serbia and other regional uh, like its allies or possibly even the non-allied nations that he has uh, so yeah i think the conflict might not you know cool down very quickly uh, but let, yeah, as you said, like you know, the dialogue between both the countries is very much necessary, uh, and I think it yeah. should be consistent. Uh, we, I think it's very similar. You know, uh, it's kind of weird, but it's very similar because in India also we are observing the same thing. Like the current government is not uh, trying to have a dialogue with Pakistan, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that is somewhere you know kind of hurting the sentiments of. Uh, I mean, the Kashmiri people. And yes. I believe like both, I, it doesn't actually affect the people living outside of Kashmir, both in Pakistan and India, but it actually affects the people who are a part of that specific region where the conflict is going on. But the rest of the country is not affected at all on both the mm -hmm. side. But I think that's yes. the reason, like, I think the dialogue is very much necessary. And let's hope, uh, I think uh, we have, 
came up with a lot of uh, questions uh, uh, during this conversation. Maybe in future, definitely we'll be able to take some bits and points and create one more episode, follow-up episode on this Serbia-Kosovo conflict uh, dedicated. Uh, sure. And as we as we proceed ahead, uh, I think we'll be taking jump directly into now the drug trafficking and its connection with the terrorism. So the further part of the conversation will be continued in the next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share, and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.